If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. So this session today is about the question of uh, morality of the tribe and universal ethics. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Should you be impartial? And in some ways that might seem the answer is obviously a yes. But um, if you then think what impartiality means, if you take it very seriously, it means not giving any special preference to your, to your family or your children, your, your, your neighbours necessarily. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, we're delving into some messy moral questions for you. From human rights promotion to effective altruism, you should be warned that this podcast will make you question all of the decisions you make on a daily basis. Should we accept that our ethics are in practice tribal? Or should we push for a universal concern for humanity? To bring you some clarity on this topic, we have barrister and founder of Effective Giving UK, Natalie Cargill, Oxford political theorist and author of On Nationality, David Miller, and human rights activist, Peter Tatchell. Back to Julian Baghini, who will be your host for this week. Can we start with you, David? We want the question really is about are, are we to any extent um, justified it right to think that morality has a kind of a tribal element? Let's put it that way. Good, thanks. Uh, yeah, that's the question. And the first thing I think to say is that morality is a very complex thing. Uh, it's more like a department store than a specialist boutique, you could say. And many of the departments do have tribal features in the sense that the duties and obligations we have are directed towards those who are close to us, our family, friends, work colleagues, people we interact with on a daily basis. And of course we also have special responsibilities to people we share 
identities with people in our faith communities and, I would argue, our compatriots. Well, that's just a description of how morality works in practice. doesn't so far justify it, and I'll come back to that. But now you may be asking, but doesn't morality also have universal features? Don't we also owe things just to human beings, regardless of any special relationships we have to them? Well, we do have obligations of that kind, but I'm going to argue that, to a large extent, those are negative in character. That's to say, there are things that we must not do to other human beings, no matter who they are. We mustn't kill them, rape them, exploit them, torture them, deceive them. Those are all negative injunctions. Don't do these things. That's very important that we have those negative duties to people everywhere. But when it comes to positive duties, things we're actively required to do for other people, then I think the scope is much narrower. Now, we do have a duty of rescue. That's to say a duty to save another human being from death or serious injury when we can do so at little cost to ourselves. And that applies no matter who the person is. But unless we're professional lifeguards or members of mountain rescue teams, that's something we're only called on to do on very rare occasions, and that's important. So positive obligations, then, are nearly all directed to those we identify with, family, friends, and so on. Isn't it just prejudice to discriminate in that way? Shouldn't we be impartial? Help those who need it most, no matter who they are? Well, I think what that overlooks is the emotional underpinning of morality. So morality isn't just rational calculation. It connects to feelings and sentiments, feelings like sympathy, pride, shame, and so on. I think the philosopher who saw that most clearly was David Hume. And Hume thought that if we didn't have those kind of feelings, we wouldn't have a moral sense at all. Now, of course, we can reflect on those feelings, and to some extent, we can correct for them. So um, a parent, for example, might feel more love for one child than another. But she knows that as a parent, she has to treat them fairly. So she still has obligations to her children, not to just children at large, her children. But she knows that she mustn't play favourites. The question is, how far can that correction of instinctive feelings go? Can we really feel the same kind of empathy for human beings, even if we share nothing with them beyond bare humanity? We have no shared history, no cultural ties, and so on. And why do we need to be impartial? Because if, and this is the big if, suppose each community can look after its own members. A parent needn't feel guilty about favouring her own children, so long as she knows that other parents are looking after their children. So we can imagine a world in which all, almost all positive obligations would be internal to communities. And I think in some ways that would be the best kind of a world because it would, would, would allow different cultures to develop in their own distinctive ways without any kind of outside interference, however well-intentioned. But of course, that isn't our world today. And so our problem is how to direct our emotional sympathies so that we feel an obligation towards the people who really need help and aren't getting it from their own communities. So we can't avoid being tribal but we can 
sometimes and to some extent, stretch the boundaries of the tribe outwards to embrace more people. Thanks so much, David. Um, Natalie Cargill, um, as someone who's involved with the effective altruism movement, I wouldn't imagine your view to be exactly the same. Um, I think a useful distinction that you've set out, David, is between moral psychology and ethics. So what do we actually do in practice and what do we think we should do? And I would agree that what we actually do in practice is we behave and we feel moral impulses that are very tribal because we evolved in tribes and that was something that was really essential for our survival. I think whether we should accept that is a different question and I don't think we should. Um, there are two things that I would say about that. Firstly, when we look back over human moral progress, we could see it as a sort of expanding circle of individuals that we believe fall within our circle of compassion. So from originally perhaps just the family to cities, to states, to nations, to different races and all of humanity, and of course, hopefully not stopping there. And in terms of some of the most shameful things that humans have done to one another, I think we can attribute some of those great atrocities to a failure to continue to expand our moral circle. I've seen this failure to think beyond tribalism in many places in terms of ongoing racism, sexism, discrimination. Entire groups have been marginalized for reasons that made sense within the conventional tribal wisdom of the time, but which now looking back are abhorrent and are deeply shameful. And I think it's very unlikely that we are the generation now who, is, who has got it all right. And we can say, okay, well, we've, we've settled on the obligations that we owe to others, and it's simply a matter of taking care of our tribe. I think the second thing I'd like to stress is that we're in a really unusual situation historically. So for most of human civilization, nothing really happened. Everybody was poor, GDP didn't really grow, um, life was pretty miserable and the sort of GDP looks like this and then you get to the Industrial Revolution and it takes off like this and we have an enormous amount of wealth and technological power and it's enormously unequally distributed and finally if we rise above our tribal instincts and we use reason and evidence we have enough resources to solve problems that have seemed intractable for example it would take a fraction of a percent of the income of the top 10% in the world to provide everyone who's at risk of malaria with insecticide-treated bed nets, or to provide all children with parasitic diseases with treatment for that disease. That would be a fraction of a percent. And on the flip side of that, there are problems that we're going to have to work on in the next, in the upcoming decades that we will not make progress on if we maintain this tribal mentality. For example, climate change or risks posed by um, biosecurity. This is something that's going to affect everybody. And either we can say we're going to step above our tribal limits and we're going to cooperate and we're going to make sure that we make it through this century, or we can sort of say, well, let's think of tribe as the human tribe, or, um, and we have a duty to everybody that w is within that tribe and also to care for, for example, the non-human animals who are under our care. So. Thanks very much. Admirably done within time as well. Thank you. Peter, as someone who's sort of done actually a lot of on-the-ground work in often dangerous situations, um, I'd be interested to hear your take on this because I'm, I'm interested in how much of what you do is driven by a belief in the universality 
of, of ethics or whether there's other stuff at, at work. Well, as a human rights defender, uh, for me, I look at history and the expansion of human rights concepts over the millennia, the centuries, the decades, culminating in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which embodies the principle that everybody on this planet is entitled to the same equal human rights. And I think that core value is absolutely essential in recognizing our common humanity in order to tackle issues like global democracy, human rights, and social justice. If we start from that core principle of universal human rights, we're on the road, or at least the right starting point, to solve the problems and issues that people face transcending national, racial, religious, political boundaries. Of course, I understand and accept that it may be natural and instinctive to think first and primarily about our immediate family, our loved ones, our neighbors. You know, that's, that's I think, understandable. But the question we're asking today, is that right or is that sufficient? Um, where does it get us? Um, I think we could end up with a um, expanded version of me, me, me. <laughs> Maybe not just focus on the individual, but focus on the immediate circle to the neglect of others. And of course, um, it's always very helpful, I think useful, to put ourselves in the situation of another who is suffering and ask ourselves what we would want other people to do if we were in that situation. If we were starving and malnourished, if our children were dying of preventable diseases, what would we want others to do? We would hope and expect that others who had the resources would come and help us to save our life and the life of our children. So if that's the way we would feel in that situation, then surely we have a moral duty of recipro reciprocity um, to people in, th in that situation as well. It, it certainly is very much uh, a requirement that we have this principle of universal human rights if we're going to tackle you know, common global problems, which are beyond the bounds and capabilities of individual governments. And Natalie's mentioned climate destruction, also species extinction, resource depletion, problems of war and peace, uh, the denial of rights to women across the globe. There's a whole constellation of issues where collective human action is necessary. And um, you know, I think that means that when we want to work effectively, we have to look beyond those immediately around us. We have to find ways of linking up with others and building solidarity and unity to tackle them. And I think that there is, you know, that is basically the way most people do think, though not necessarily all the time. So I think about uh, the great tsunami which devastated Southeast Asia and the huge outpouring of support from people in Britain who donated to the fund to help those victims, uh, to help them rebuild their lives. Uh, a great example of international altruism where people look beyond their own immediate loved ones to the wider humanity. Um, in 1937, when Guernica was being bombed by the fascists in Spain, uh, liberals and progressives all around the world rallied to support the people there and to oppose that mass destruction. Interestingly, there's been no similar outpouring when Assad and Putin bomb Aleppo, Homs, Idlib, and elsewhere. So there's a really big disjunction in different moments in history between global responses. So I think there is you know, a real strand of, of, of public opinion which does see beyond 
our immediate loved ones and does have this global picture, but it doesn't always work. It isn't a universal. Uh, it is very patchy and on and off. Okay. Well, thanks very much. I mean, the, the, the question, well, various questions tied up with this one, but one is, you know, the extent to which we really should treat everyone the, literally the same, irrespective of our relationship to us. And I just follow up with something that David said, and put this to Peter. D David sort of distinguished between these negative and positive kind of duties, and saying the negative ones really are universal, you know, don't murder, don't torture, etc. But the positive ones, like who we should actually have obligations to look after or something, um, yeah, that, that, that can be more particular. Now, the, the UN, Universal Declaration of Human Rights and human rights in general, a lot of people would argue that they are, they really work and they command support when they're about those negatives, if you like, the things we shouldn't do to other people. When we start talking about rights as obligations to provide people with things, you know, that becomes more problematic because that actually puts an obligation on someone to, to, to put it. So w when, when you're advocating the universality of human rights, do you, do you restrict yourselves to those kind of negatives or do you think that actually extends to the positives as well? Well, I think, interestingly, most international human rights conventions are positives. You know, the right to life, freedom of expression, the right to freedom of belief. These are all about positive rights. Um, some do have, you know, negative um, um, injunctions as well, but mostly they're positive, mostly about an affirmation of what is the right and entitlement of every human being. So I think, you know, I think that that framing is the right way. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose, that, I mean, the, the wording is often positive, but in practice, what that boils down to is that essentially people have a right not to have certain things done to them which would infringe them. It doesn't necessarily put any duty on someone to, pro to provide goods. Whereas things like, you know, right to housing, right to food, that, that's the, the complication, isn't it? So David, I mean, could you say a little bit more about why you're not persuaded those things really are universals? So, I mean, the interesting thing about the original human rights declaration that Peter's mentioned was it was addressed, it was signed by states and addressed to states. So it was saying to states, these are the things you should do, negative things, don't do, don't do this, don't interfere with freedom of expression, freedom of religion and so on, positively provide education, work and so on and so on. So it was very much um, a division of responsibility such that each state was to have the responsibility to provide those things for its own citizens. And the, the problem we're facing here is, I think, that we're moving between individual morality, what each of us as individuals should do, and what you might call political ethics, that's to say what states together should do for their own citizens and also to some extent for citizens of other countries in issues, some of the issues we've been talking about like climate change, the refugee crisis, involve collaboration between states. But these, I think, are not really matters of individual ethics. Okay, well that, yeah. that's interesting. For, yeah. I mean, Natalie, I don't know what you make of that because yeah. so effective altruism obviously has certain varieties and variations. But people often say it puts an intolerable sort of a burden on an individual. So in other words, if there's any suffering in the world that I can stop, then in a way I'm kind of obliged to, 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 to do that. Mm. Is that your understanding of effective altruism? And, and what do you say to the objection that's just, it's just too demanding? I would say two things. Uh, firstly, with regards to the sort of negative and positive um, ways of approaching rights and duties, I think these... Thinking about this from an evolutionary standpoint, I think it makes sense when you be, you know, a member of a tribe in the ancestral environment to be very concerned with judging people um, and 
is this person somebody I'd like to deal with? And from that perspective, saying, well, anybody who, you know, goes around kicking kittens or harming people or doing clearly, you know, terrible acts, that's really relevant. Whereas somebody who doesn't go out of their way to help others, that's less relevant because, you know, you don't learn very much about that person. But effective altruism isn't as concerned with judging people, but rather with finding those actions that will lead to the best consequences on the basis of reason and evidence, and then taking those actions. And when you approach it from that perspective, looking at acts versus emissions doesn't make as much sense, because empirically we're in a situation where a very small number of individuals have what would have been in the ancestral environment a literally unimaginable amount of resources. And there are people um, suffering and dying for lack of those resources. And you can say, well, I'm not obliged because it, it would be an act for me to do something there. But the case, I think, is, is less strong in this extremely unequal world that we're in. And in terms of demandingness, um, I think it's been assumed that the effective altruist position is that we have an obligation and a duty um, to help others. But that's, that's one of two ways of looking at it. And um, the other is uh, this opportunity framing. So the first framing is, I think, that which Peter Singer endorses, and it's sort of known as the generalized pond argument. So I know many of you will have heard of this um, thought experiment about passing the drowning. You're, you're walking somewhere and you come across a pond, a shallow pond, and you see a child appearing to drown in that pond. And obviously you should go in and help the child. And the thought experiment is, if you had on, say, a, a very expensive suit that was worth several thousand pounds, would not wanting to ruin your suit be a good enough reason to not rescue the child? And everybody says, well, of course not. And what Singer did in his uh, paper on this would say, well, that's actually the same situation that we're in now in the world, where for the cost of an expensive suit, we can literally save the life of a child. So from that framing, there is an obligation when you're buying luxury items to think, well, actually, by buying this item and, and not donating it to the most effective giving opportunity, I'm essentially harming that child. However, there is another framing, and that framing is as follows. Imagine if once a year you came across an opportunity to save someone's life. You saw a burning building and you were, were a hero, you climbed in through the window, you rescued a child, and that child lived because of the actions that you took. And then say the next year you would you know, save another child in another heroic situation. You would think, wow, this is a really fulfilling way to live. This is really quite a special life and I'm very lucky to be able to do this. And I think both of those framings can be right and really depending on which ethical view you subscribe to, um, you can see these things as an obligation or you can see them as an opportunity or you can see them as some combination of both. But the world is just so weird that we do live in that situation. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the things you, you said initially in your comments I want to pick up is there's an issue here of, you, you, you put it in terms of a distinction between moral psychology and actual ethics. So 
Um, there's a lot of work now in, you know, by psychologists on what actually happens when people make moral choices. And that doesn't necessarily correspond to moral theories, but of course what people do isn't necessarily what they ought to do. Uh, you talked about David Hume, and David Hume talks about this is-ought distinction. Describing the way human beings actually work psychologically doesn't necessarily tell us what they ought to do. I wonder how you might respond to that though, David, because the challenge in a way is that you know, a lot of what you've said, which is about uh, you know, it's a partial defense of a kind of tribalism, is rooted on the idea that there's something about you know, the way the human mind works that's important there. But what about the argument that says, well, so what? If the human mind works in the wrong way, we have to try and work at correcting it. Well, I think in the end, you know, m morality is a matter of, of motivation. So although, and I said this before, I think, although we can to some extent redirect the, the natural moral sentiments and feelings that we have, it's a mistake to think that we can kind of 100% switch off that psychology. Let's think about why it is that we would all say that you have the duty to jump into that pond and pull the child out. Now that's a very special situation and it invokes a very strong human response. But the more general case, the case of global poverty, there are, there are going to be millions of people both in need of help and able to give it. And there is no direct emotional response on the part of the, uh, the person who might give. So it's a very different situation. Um, um, and Peter, I mean, when you work, I mean, universal human rights can sound very abstract. And, and sometimes, though, in advocating for those things, you've actually, in some cultures, the kind of things you're advocating go against a lot of norms. So to what, to what extent do you think you're having to, in a sense, challenge people to think ethically in a way that doesn't go with their emotions and feelings? Or to what extent are you actually just trying to get them to, you know, feel differently? It's often either or or both. But yeah. um, I would say that one of the very disturbing trends of the last two or three decades is the decline of the principle of universal human rights and the rise of what's been called cultural relativism. So the idea that um, in other cultures, because of politics or religion, people should be left to suffer because it's their culture. Mm. So we often hear about the plight of women in Iran that, you know, Sharia Islam has certain rules about women, therefore we shouldn't interfere, we shouldn't get involved. Now, I don't believe in interference, but it does shock me that every year, usually 50 to 100 very courageous Iranian women rally on International Women's Day outside Justice Square in Tehran, get beaten and arrested by the police, and Western leftists and feminists do not rally to their support. So I think this concept of universal rights is not firmly established and has been greatly under assault in, in recent times. Um, I mean, there's a question there, of, you, you, I, I, you put that very eloquently, but of course, um, sometimes the kind of thing you're protesting against is in the name of a kind of a, a relativism. Uh, to put it more positively, perhaps, some people would argue that we have to be on our guard constantly about a kind of a, a moral imperialism, the imposing of values. And a lot of people would say that some, you know, liberal in interventionism, the kind of thing that's just got a bad name since the, the Iraq war, is an example of actually what happens when you, when you just sort of treat the whole world as though there were no distinction between the citizens of your country and the citizens of another. Well, I don't believe in 
the imposition of Western values or Western intervention, but I do believe in supporting the many people in those countries who are struggling for those freedoms. So I support the Iranian trade unionists, the Iranian women's movement, the persecuted Kurds, Baluch, and Arab peoples of Iran. I support their struggle. So it's about solidarity with their fight, not about me seeking to impose my values on them. Yeah. I mean, that's I want to bring you back in this. I put your sort of like question in a sense to, to David. Um, the, the criticism against, you know, your stance would be that the, the moral psychology isn't realistic. You're, you're constantly asking people to, to go against, well, human nature if you like but do you, I mean, do, you, do, you, do you really think that the kind of thing that you're promoting in effective altruism in a sense you know it could you know, ha hack what we take to be our kind of moral instincts and actually lead to a, a more universal feeling I don't know what it might be mm. yeah again there are sort of two responses to that um, we've talked a lot about empathy and the sort of emotional pull that people feel towards certain moral questions and nobody wants to be saying anything against empathy, but I'm going to do that. In that empathy clearly can't be the, the sole uh, driving force of, of how we should conduct ourselves. Firstly, because empathy is extremely biased. We're, you know, we know we're more likely to feel empathy for those that look similar to us. And that can't be a basis for making decisions when all human lives are of equal value. Secondly, empathy is uh, not sensitive to the large numbers that we're now dealing with in the world. So there's a, another sort of famous experiment which asked people how much they would pay to save a certain number of fish who'd been, uh, birds, sorry, who'd been drowned in oil. And one group, I think it was, how much would you pay to save 20 birds? And there was a picture of the birds and then 2,000 and then 20,000. Might not be the exact numbers, but it was increasing by orders of magnitude. And everybody said they'd pay about the same. Which is, which is appalling because behind every number there was an individual who mattered and we're not able, our empathetic feelings are not able to properly take that into account. So when we're dealing with global problems um, that are going to affect potentially the future of sentient life, we need to recognise that we're not very good at feeling numbers intuitively and that we should actually perhaps use some of our rational thinking skills which we apply to other domains fairly well. And in terms of um, your question about the sort of psychological practicality of effective altruism. I think it makes sense to take your one psychology as sort of a basic fact. So it's not the, the case that, okay, well, I could, you know, save so many children if I gave away all my income. So that's what I'm going to do. And even as a consequentialist, if, if you'd advise someone to do that, they'd likely end up miserable, overworked, not looking like a, a very positive example for others. And that would be unrealistic. So instead, something like, I'm going to set aside 10% of my income. And given that you know many of us here will be among the top percentage of earners in the world, and I'm going to use that predetermined portion to help as many individuals as I can, and maybe use another portion to focus on something else that's important to me. Or when considering how I'd like to spend my career or what I'd like to do with my time, I'm going to attempt to take into account the fact that I can benefit many others if I think a little bit more carefully about my career decision, for example. Yeah. I mean, did you want to come in? Yeah. Yes. Um, one, I mean, does it, is it a concern about effective altruism that there's a sort of inequality that's built into it? So here we are, rich people, 
and they're over there are you poor starving people and we're going to give you stuff and we're not expecting you to reciprocate you're just going to be the recipients of our giving and there you might contrast that and this is why I think um, I'm much keener on the idea of fair trade because fair trade is a much more egalitarian relationship so we, when we trade fairly we're saying to a coffee grower in Brazil or Ecuador or wherever Kenya look you know you've got something we want coffee beans we're going to give you a fair price for it um, and so it's a kind of egalitarian relationship in which we're, we're involved in reciprocity so I worry a bit about the um, I don't know the kind of if you like the psychology of this effect of altruism which is one way does that does that worry you Ellie? I mean in terms of egalitarianism I think if we were to take that really seriously we would very quickly redistribute all of the wealth in the world um, it is that's not what the effect of altruism project proposes but I would it seems that we're already in a position of such disparity and in order for us to help others that's not as I see it unegalitarian for example I think one question you could ask yourself is well let's just ask the beneficiaries um, Give Directly, for example, is an organization that simply sends cash to the world's poorest people. And those people receive that cash on mobile phone transfers and they're able to use that however they like. And we can ask those people um, for their views on what they would like to do with that cash, but ultimately it's empowering to them to be able to spend it. And also I think effective altruism is not, and it's important to stress, it's not tied to a particular cause area such as global health it's sort of the intellectual and moral project of finding those actions that will ultimately do the most good and focuses across a number of cause areas and i think some things for example singer's pond experiment can create the inaccurate impression that it's only about helping the global poor whereas for me the point of that thought experiment is if there are very um easy ways to do a lot of good without a huge amount of personal sacrifice, we should consider taking those. I just want to follow up on this because one thing I think David's question suggests, correct me if, if this is not something you're saying, is that in a way there are, sort of diff there are different ways of thinking about what the objective of, of ethics is about and I, I suppose part of your concern is that the, the consequentialist kind of uh, outlook, which is the focusing on outcomes, misses out an important part of it. Being an ethical life is not just about what outcomes, it concerns the way we relate to each other. And that's something that's often accused of being missing from this kind of outcome-based view. And once you start thinking about how important it is, not only what the outcomes are, but how we relate to each other, you can then, it opens the door a bit to think of how, well, actually, how we relate to each other does depend a lot on exactly how, you know, family, community, and so forth. So. There's a kind of there is a there's a role for giving a certain weight to relationships, which is missed if you focus only on complete outcomes. Um, I, I didn't want to ask us, but anything briefly to say about that? Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you could you could ask yourself the question. Um, you know, supposing you are the recipient, you're a very poor person, and you live on the the proceeds of effective altruism. How would you feel about that? Well, you might think it's better than starving, but you wouldn't feel great about it. You wouldn't feel great that your, your life, you're having your life through the generosity of rich people. That's not a really good way to live. I, th I think there's two yeah. kinds of altruism yeah. Yeah. in this scenario. Yeah. One yeah. is about, you know, charity, handout, you know, 
us deciding what people need and giving yeah. them you know XYZ and then the other one is listening to people what yeah. they want and then giving them the resources so they can help themselves yeah. and that is of course the new trend in lots of charitable and, and giving organizations to empower people to have the resources to uplift themselves in ways that are long-term and sustainable rather than just doling out, doling out, doling out. If I might add, sorry, um, I mentioned Give Directly earlier. So that's an organization that's been recommended by GiveWell, which is a, a charity evaluator that does very in-depth analysis of the impact of different interventions. And GiveWell has um, a website that you can visit where those who those recipients of cash transfers can directly upload their views on those cash transfers to the internet. And this is absolutely not filtered by GiveDirectly at all. And it does seem, having glanced through that page, that they're extraordinarily happy to have, to have received the cash transfers that they've had and that they've used them in ways that have led to longer term improvements in their income, such as by building tin roofs or investing in things that their communities need. I would also add that on the the sort of listen to the beneficiaries um, point, there are some beneficiaries who very much need our help who are not able to communicate with us, such as the nearly 100 billion animals that we raise on factory farms every year, or such as the future generations, people who will be born into a world potentially devastated by climate change if we don't sort of collectively get our act together and rise above tribal morality. So it's not always possible to listen to beneficiaries, but those that we can listen to seem to be fairly happy. Um, before, before we open up, I just wanted to go back to this idea. The, the, the debate is framed around this idea of tribe and tribal, which is perhaps not the, the best phrase. It does associate a kind of a blind loyalty to those who sort of have some, I don't know, ethnic or national similarity to us. But if we think more about, you know, communities of interest and, you know, people we're related to, um, I mean, Peter, in, in, in your, your work is often around, uh, you know, queer rights and you're, you're dealing there, you're, you, these are about universal rights, but of course you're also dealing with particular interest groups and the same with women's rights in Saudi Arabia and so forth. So, you know, is there, isn't there so perhaps a sense in which, you know, often it's extremely useful and important to work with, you know, subsets, particular groups with whom you have an affinity or a connection? It's certainly true that um, you know, none of us can do everything, mm. so we have to focus to be effective. Um, but that is not, in my case, not based upon any um, prioritization. It's just you know, where I know from my experience I can be effective. And in particular, all the international work I do is driven by appeals and liaison with groups in those countries. So I'm listening to them and taking my cue from them at all, all times. Mm. Can I ask a final brief question to you, which is like perhaps a bit of a summarizing question. I think, you know, there's generally an agreement, I would think, that it has been a good thing that in the phrase Natalie used, we've expanded the circle of our ethical concern. That's a kind of a sign of moral progress, right, that we do that. But agreeing on that is not the same as agreeing that the final outcome of that is a complete impartiality, whereby we actually don't favor people close to us family any more than other people so I suppose just just a final like minute or so from you each to what to how close do you think to that ideal of complete our impartiality should we get or to put it another way how far away from it should we <laughs> retreat 
But I think maybe in an ideal world, yes, but I think it's probably not practical. And we have to balance you know, our own subjective understandings and our own subjective loyalties to that wider principle of universal human rights. We have to find a way through those tensions. Okay, great. Natalie? I think we have to work with what we've got in terms of our psychology. And I certainly feel that the special relationships I have with my family and friends have never ever come into tension with the work of effective altruism. Um, so, simple answer. That. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I go back to the negative and positive. I mean, I think this universal obligation not to cause harm is very important. But then when it comes to the, what I call the positive helping, aiding duties, I think the, the, the expanding circle is fine, but the, there are rings within rings. And we do have stronger positive obligations to those who are close to us and related to us. Okay, thanks so much. Well, I mean, one of the great things about this conversation is that although there's a, a, some disagreement among the panel, it's great that we've got people on a stage who are basically getting us to think more about what we ought to do if we want to help to make the world a better place rather than sort of not thinking about it at all. And it just leaves me finally simply to thank David, Natalie and Peter for some really interesting thoughts. Thank you. <laughs>